I will just try and um, make sure everyone does uh, stay to a, a very brief. This is not a research presentation. This is a, a short intervention. Um, we could really take this in any order, but um, why don't why don't we start with Yossi? Okay. Uh, who yes is, has worked on Kissinger on American foreign policy, on detente, on um, most recently on on security and on international terrorism, mm -hmm. and is a is an ideal way of starting our discussion about the Cold War. Okay. Okay, well first, uh, thank you very much for the invitation. It's uh, nice to be back in London. Uh, um, thanks especially to Jessica and the uh, Reluctant Internationalist Group. You will explain later on why you're so reluctant and, uh, and, and we'll to get to that, I'm sure, during the, during the coffee break. Um, I thought five minutes so I'm going to be extremely broad in terms of what I'm going to say and hopefully we can then get into details over the course of the discussion afterwards, plus, plus um, over the course of the day, I think once uh, more and more issues come to the come to the world. So what I, I thought I would simply, in thinking about Cold War history, uh, the globalization of Cold War uh, history and, and so on, this, in general it seems to me that what we have today in the historiographical discussions about the Cold War, there's a tension between what I would call is nostalgia um, and then liberation. Uh, by nostalgia, I mean those of us, um, not necessarily including myself, <laughs> uh, who <coughs> think in terms of the Cold War as something that was real, um, that was something that indeed mattered to everybody on the globe, uh, something that uh, also people look back onto. Uh, not only historians, certain Cold War historians who like to rewrite their books slightly better <laughs> as they get older, but also, also those of us, uh, all the politicians that you certainly, you know, if you follow some, anybody who follows American politics, for example, um, you've seen discussions about how so every now and then a politician comes out and says, well, things used to be so simple because there was them and there was us. And now we have all these crises, you know, the terrorists, the Iranians with trying to get the nukes and the North Koreans and all the rest of it. So things have gotten extremely complicated uh, over the, since the Cold War ended a uh, quarter of a century ago. Um, and so that's the nostalgia part. There is, um, on the one hand, the historians who like to think that indeed it was something real, but something that mattered, uh, and the politicians who in many quarters, look back onto the Cold War. Particularly, I think you see the, the power relations in, in terms of, of the globe. Certainly, you have not only in the United States, but certainly in, in today's Russia, a certain type of Cold War nostalgia that plays out in politics and, and so on. <coughs> and then there's the liberation part, which, by which I think to, I, I like to identify it. those who think, well, there's much more to the Cold War than George Cannon and Winston Churchill, and, and Kissinger, and Brzezinski, and, <laughs> and, and all those big guys and, and who divided the world and who explained the world in very black and white terms and, and often harking back to real politic ideas about power and, and how it functions. Um, as a result, we have a great deal of confusion as to what the Cold War was all about, which I think is a wonderful thing. Um, and I think it's a wonderful thing that we're here spending a whole day discussing and confusing, I hope, each other uh, in, uh, in many ways about this. Um, so 
in general terms, I think the truth, obviously, um, we mentioned the term post-revisionist at dinner last night with, uh, with peers, and, uh, you know, the, the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? Um, it is, I think, certainly true that in that four decades or so, after World War II, the ideas of the, that in which the cold when we talk about ideology later on, but the ideas that were propagated by certainly the main nations involved in the Cold War context, the United States and the Soviet Union, these ideas had a great deal of resonance across the globe. And that they defined many of them, uh, these ideas defined many of the domestic debates in a number of countries, whether in the East or the West or the South or the North. Um, there's no question that, you know, I come from Finland. Yes, the Cold War was very omnipresent for any number of reasons you can think about, not least because of geographical proximity to the Soviet Union. Um, so the Cold War was a very real thing, uh, I think, in, uh, in, in many of um, um, many parts of the globe. Uh, it gave certain markers, I think, the, uh, the, the endless debates about capitalism versus socialism, which was not a new debate for the post-1945 era, of course, and it has post-dated, of course, to some extent, in different forms, um, the Cold War itself. So that debate was very much part of uh, sort of transnational aspects of the Cold War that permeated uh, and influenced people's opinions, lives, uh, and, and, and societal structure. There was a superstructure, in other words, I think, that mattered, that gave certain direction. Um, whether you were in Finland or you were in Argentina, uh, I think you touched upon these, in, in one way or another, these debates were relevant. Whether you believed in John Maynard Keynes or not, you know, uh, did matter and was sort of explained in a, in a sense in which it had political resonance um, to, to, to many people. Um, it gave markers in a sense that, but much of this debate in the end, and this is I think what made the Cold War unique is that this was a debate that did go on in so many places and so many countries. Um, and a debate in which the stakes appeared to be very high in many ways. That if in the debate there was a shift to the wrong direction, it might mean intact external intervention um, from the powers such as the United States or the Soviet Union. Um, and so in that sense, it was a very also very much a life and death issue to some people. Uh, whether or not you were, where you took the side in that debate. I think what's interesting about how that debate has sort of receded or certainly been transformed over the past quarter of a century, if it, you know, many of us can avoid looking at some of the American presidential election these days, and the fact that one of the frontrunners in the Democratic Party is a self-proclaimed democratic socialist. If you think that somebody could have come out in 1985 and said that, and survived politically, then no, simply could not have been possible. Um, and I think, in some ways, that sort of same kind of logic does apply to did apply to a number of other other states as well. Now, that's one, one thing. Moment. That means time is up. One moment. One moment. Okay. So, the liberation part. Very very quickly. I think what's interesting, however. You know, the fact that many politicians, many historians like to think of the, they still like to draw those maps and, and put colors in them and that, that's it. 
But of course, the reality was much more complex. Um, the idea of some kind of a golden age of simplicity defined, you know, that the Cold War defined, is in many ways certainly the reason research has proved it to be a, a misnomer. And that yes, these debates existed, but in, in many parts of the world, but they meant very things, and many meant very different things, whether you were in Finland or Germany or Argentina indeed, or, or Chile or, or Vanuatu of all places. They meant very, and don't ask me about Vanuatu, I have no idea, but, <laughs> but they meant very different things in these different places. They could be either domestically significant in overpowering political opponents, they could be important in terms of manipulating the sources of economic or military power, say the United States, who tended to be very gullible for all sorts of, uh, of anti-communist uh, activities, so on. So they did matter um, in, in a broadest possible sense. At the same time, I think what, what certainly recent research has shown is the, the limits to which the Cold War. Yes, the superstructure mattered. However, it mattered in very different ways. There was differentiation at the in, in any number of ways, and I think we can, you know, return to that theme. Thank I think. you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very much. You see. Right. Unless are there any immediate questions, specific questions for you? See. I think we can probably save that for a minute. Um, should we move on to Julia next? Sure. sure. So. Ge for, uh, geographically a politically quite different perspective. Julia has worked on the relationship between culture and the, the Chinese state building in a way and is working on a, a huge history of the global history of Maoism um, and on how Maoist politics and culture travelled across the world. So, yes, Julia, it's very relevant. Um, thank you very much, Jessica. Yeah, first of all, huge thanks to Jessica and her team for organising this workshop today. I know I'm going to learn a huge amount from everyone uh, gathered here today, and I'm, I'm glad that I am going second after you two because I'm going to be less gracefully um, summative and maybe a little bit more focused on my particular um, area of research. Uh, what I want to do in the five minutes that I have is to explain briefly what I'm trying to do in this um, global history of Maoism, but also move out from that to talk about some of the broader interpretive questions uh, regarding Cold War history that my research has suggested. Uh, so, as uh, Jessica said, I'm working right now on a global history of Maoism. I'm looking at the cultural, intellectual, political and social impact of Maoist Chinese communism between 1936 and the present day. Um, I begin with the inception of a Maoist revolution in China in the late 1930s um, and its international outworkings. Um, I take in the global vogue for these ideas in the 1960s and the 1970s at the height of the Sino-Soviet split. Um, and I'm going to end with Maoist manifestations in Asia today. Um, and the idea for the book sprang in part from my readings of narratives about communism and the Cold War that I felt were in the popular domain. Um, I felt that for decades many generalist histories of communism and the Cold War tended to relegate revolutionary Maoism to little more than a case study within a Eurocentric or US-centric frame of analysis. 
And in accounts of the Cold War written outside Chinese studies, I glimpsed a couple of assumptions about Maoism, namely that Maoism was a Chinese story um, and a story located firmly in the pre-1989 or even pre-1976 past. And I felt both these ideas were worth questioning. Uh, for example, the longevity of the Chinese Communist government, which is, of course, still substantially built on precepts established during the Mao era, and also the longevity of Maoist guerrilla movements in contemporary India, suggests that Maoism remains a highly significant political force in the world today. Uh, these realities, therefore, oblige historians to elasticate, if you like, uh, their chronologies of the Cold War. Um, and Maoism has always been far more than an exclusively Chinese story. Uh, Mao's ideas have inspired Russian partisans, Southeast Asian nationalists, and Western political thinkers, social activists, and cultural producers. They've shaped revolutionary movements in, for example, Peru, India, and Nepal. And some analysts today even suggest that Islamic State currently deploys Maoist military strategy in its pursuit of asymmetric warfare in Iraq and Syria. Now, to make this potentially vast project more wieldy, I whittled it down to nine case studies for the reception of Maoist ideas. I'm going to look at China, Southeast Asia, Western Europe and the US, post-colonial Africa, the Middle East, <laughs> Peru, India and Nepal. Uh, positive thinking. Um, <laughs> Um, I have, uh, again, to make it more wieldy, I have a core of research questions that I apply to studying these different territories. Uh, these include, uh, for example, how did China's Maoist regime build and manipulate international networks of support during the Cold War? Um, and what influence did these networks have on domestic and international events? I also want to think about what was the impact of Maoist thought and practice on hot conflicts of the Cold War, particularly in Southeast Asia and Vietnam, of course, where historically China's political and cultural influence was the strongest. And also, thinking about the resonances of this history for the present day, to what extent are tensions between China and some Asian countries today rooted in memory of Mao-era China's attempts at export of revolution, quote-unquote. Um, also, I want to ask, what can a study of global Maoism, with all its regional complexities, you know, to what extent can we meaningfully talk about um, Maoism as a unified uh, political global phenomenon? But what can this study of global Maoism tell us about the transmission of ideas about political radicalism and violence in the post-colonial and post-Cold War eras? So what I want to do is um, to contribute to rethinking the history of the Cold War and also, of course, Mao-era China's place in world history by breaking discussion of Maoism out of the confines of national histories and try to reconceptualise it as a global movement. I also really want to point out that increasingly this is not a revisionist thing to do. So over the last de decade, we've seen a new, very exciting corpus of work on global Maoisms emerge. Um, this corpus of work has looked at the influence of Maoist ideas, texts, objects and practices, and also the channels through which Mao-era China altered the trajectory of the Cold War. 
So some of this influence is clearly direct. Uh, for example, you can look at the impact of Maoist ideas on the West German radical left wing through the 60s and 70s and even beyond. You can look at the Maoist imprint on the Vietnamese revolution, although for obvious reasons archival access is, 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 is tricky, that being such a politically contested relationship between China and Vietnam. Uh, some of the outcomes of this influence are indirect. Um, and a great example of a new book exploring the latter um, is Jeremy Friedman's The Shadow Cold War, which was published last year. Uh, and this book argues in a highly archivally uh, uh, informed way that the Sino-Soviet split and rivalry in the Third World had a huge impact on the process of the Cold War. Um, in brief, uh, Friedman argues that through the 60s and the 70s, the Soviet Union uh, felt that it had to respond to Chinese rhetorical <coughs> and practical militancy in the Third World with a foreign policy shift uh, towards encouraging and aiding, funding radical anti-imperialist struggle in some of those countries. And I think it's possible to argue that this led to the Soviet Union overcommitting itself in third world arenas and led to the military and political Very catastrophe nice. of the Afghanistan intervention. So my time is up. I have much more to say, as you can probably imagine, and also unpick, but um, I'll stop here and hope to continue the discussion later. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> Go on. Yes, good. You can do the <laughs> And... Next, we should turn to Anne, okay. uh, who has uh, a long work on, on British foreign policy, on Germany, on security, and on European integration. I don't actually know what you're working on at the moment, but I'm sure you will tell us. Post Cold War, Cold War, post Cold War complexity myself. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm, I think everyone's going to have intellectual jet lag by the time we finish this session. <laughs> I, we've heard these two very abstruse. Papers. I thought I was going to go first, so I'm giving you the introduction now. <laughs> That's fine. I'm going to take off my pulpit as well. I'm going to make three points, um, and I hope that if, when the discussion begins that we can pick up on any of them that anybody may be interested in. The first one is really to do with the nuts and bolts of what we're all doing, and it seems to me that um, there is a historiographical question here of how we engage with the different literatures from the fairly distant past, the medium past, and the very recent past. Um, and I come from a political science department for my sins. I think that we historians, I'm a closet historian, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> we, we tend to suffer from what the political scientists often call cognitive dissonance. It's quite difficult if you're trained in one area of thinking of the, about the world to shift and read literature which has very different precepts. And I think that's something that all historians are confronting in, in an, this new glo globalization. Um, and we are shaped by where we are. We wouldn't have, never, never mind Yus's socialists, you know, this kind of discussion about global health wouldn't have taken place um, in the 60s, maybe in the 70s, but not in the 60s. That's the first uh, thing about the, the structure of what we're doing. The second is the methodological. And we all suffer from a surfeit of archives. I'm in a college which is full of archaeologists, and if they find a new penny, they can tell us about 100 years. And I think, God, they don't know how lucky they are. Um, we have too much. They're very, they're very envious. They're archi they suffer from archive envy. 
that we have so much to look at. But I think that that's something we have to learn to live with and we have to be very selective. Um, and the third is the conceptual one. I think it is copping out to think of the Cold War simply as a period of time. It's 45 to 89 or 91, forget the rest. That is a total intellectual cop-out in my own view. But to try and break down why I think that's a cop-out is we have to think about territory, and both that theme has been picked up by, by both of the previous speakers, about ideology, which really matters. And I think I disagree with you, Jessica. I think ideology mattered in the 50s. Um, of course, of hugely I, important I, in the 50s, as so. much as territory. <laughs> oh, sorry, perhaps I misunderstood uh, you. And then also that it's both a foreign policy. Cold War was foreign policy, but now we know that Cold War is actually domestic policy as well. So we have altered their own, our own frameworks. Um, and I think I would say that when speaking to people who are not Cold War scholars first, remember that because we thought it turned out okay in 89, doesn't mean there were very, very high levels of uncertainty during the Cold War. It was not clear that the path we were on was going anywhere anytime soon at the time. And that historical imagination of reading into the uncertainty of the environment for all these different categories of histories is, is I think, very important. So my own view, and I would agree with Yossi here, that it, in a sense, the Cold War is a thread that runs through everything. We might not realize it, and people at the time might not have realized it, but I think it's almost impossible to get away from it, whether it's ideology and religion, territory, ideas, economy. So that was the first point. The second is that when I finished my doctorate, I was asked to give my first talk. And I talked about Britain as an important actor between 45 and 47. One of my very senior professors stood up and said, Anne, you're very delightful, but you're totally wrong and you're not going anywhere. It's only to do with the Soviet Union and the United States. Go away and think about something else to do with Britain, like the welfare state. Um, and I was really hurt and upset. But it made me realize that actually he was wrong and I was right, which was nice in the end. But it's tough. <laughs> it's very hard work to get what the political scientists call a paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. To shift the way the world, and not just the poles, actually. Um, you know, the goddesses of the world have a lot to answer for. Um, uh, the way they think. And it's tough when you're trying to set new agendas. And you are not just trying to knock down, but also trying to absorb and realize that what I think is emerging to be the case is that there are overlapping agendas, which brings me to my third point. Um, I'm not sure there is a global history of the Cold War. I think actually there are many global histories of the Cold War and many global histories of the second half of the 20th century, never mind the period from 1917. And I haven't got time to talk about it now, but. It's, I'm trying to read Arna Westad against Frederick Cooper. Now, Arna Westad, Global Cold War book, forgets Europe altogether to his <coughs> chagrin, I hope. Um, Frederick Cooper, who talks about French West Africa, is obsessed by constitutions, citizens, and the French, the process of French decolonization, and thinks a little bit about Europe, but hardly mentions the Cold War at all. And so you have these two totally different takes on a very 
complex continent. And I think that that's a really interesting way of, of trying to narrow down the big questions we have. And I have a student, for example, working on Yaoundé. Now, those of you who don't know about Yaoundé, it's the agreement between the French West African states, largely, with the European community on trade. And the question then becomes, <coughs> is it a Cold War issue? The Americans have got the CIA watching what's going on. Is it a Soviet-American issue? The Russians are on the corner looking in, in it with interest in the early 60s into Africa. Is it a European question? Is it European neo-colonialism or French neo-colonialism? And the British look on because they can't get the same deal for their own ex-empires. So you have this wonderful melding of different sources. And, and, and my own view is that you can't say Cooper's wrong, he's too narrow. He may be too narrow, but he's got a point. You can't say Arna Wester's wrong because you bury your own career if you say that. <laughs> um, and so now he's gone off to work on China, so you're going to have to cope with it. Um, and, and so you, I think what we have to do as historians is to be integrative, is to take, to be overlapping, and to live with multiple interpretations which seems to be the only way that we can deal with the broadening of the Cold War studies. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Right, our third speaker, I think, our fourth speaker. In fact, we should turn to Lucas. Lucas has a, a, an image. He will still stick to the time he's promised us. He's yeah. Can you do that? Yeah. Uh, Lucas it's, is. It's, it's, it's very hot, so that's why I just. Yeah. Now because it's hot and it's noisy. Oh, I, I see. All right. <laughs> so Lucas has worked on architecture and the built environment um, and planning in the, in the context of the socialist countries and is particularly interested in the connections between the, the Eastern Bloc countries and um, Africa, Asia, Middle East and the, in the form of exporting of ideas about the city and of, of urbanism. Lucas. Yes. Um. It's warming up. Great. There we go. Uh, thank you, and thanks so much for having me. Uh, so I'd like to briefly present to you my research project, which is uh, focused on architects, planners, engineers, construction companies, and architectural educators from socialist Eastern Europe who worked uh, during the Cold War in West Africa and the eastern part of the Middle East. And the reason for that geographic choice is periodization, to which I will uh, return at the end. Uh, I think it's interesting to mention that this project was developed by a variety of media, so there, there, is, there is a number of scholarly papers which were published since 2009 on that, but also exhibitions at various institutions. So there are, I think, various types of engagements related to that project and also various types of sensitivities in various countries related to it. If there is one sort of guiding hypothesis, uh, it would be something like that. I want to argue that modern architecture as a worldwide phenomenon was produced from within uh, competing global visions of cooperation and solidarity. Among them, uh, the networks of socialist internationalism and the non-allied movement were essential. In other words, it, uh, it, is, a, it is a research which argues that um, we cannot reduce that global dimension of architecture to narratives of westernization, of our Americanization. Uh, and I think it's very important that you have some images in mind. Uh, that's why I brought images from my case studies. <clears throat> so these are the buildings I'm looking at 
in Ghana, so uh, which I photographed uh, a couple of years ago, uh, buildings designed by Polish, Yugoslav, or Croatian, Hungarian architects in a prime Kumasi, uh, all working for a state company in Accra under Kwan Krumach, and also, as you see, educational projects which, which, for which these architects were responsible. These are some examples from uh, Nigeria, including the uh, National Theatre in Lagos, still an icon, designed and built by the Bulgarian firm Techno Export Stroy, uh, a very prominent international trade fair in, in uh, Lagos by the Yugoslav or Serbian Energo project, a huge project of mapping traditional Nigerian architecture by a Polish architect a project which uh, really had a, had made a major impact on uh, architecture, culture in Nigeria and education, and a very important uh, Romanian uh, project of type housing. Uh, now, the two uh, case studies from uh, the Middle East, the master plan of Baghdad of 1973, which is still the current master plan for the city of Baghdad, which is a Polish master plan, <laughs> and the huge uh, <laughs> Uh, program of uh, uh, housing, the general housing pro program for Iraq, also uh, delivered by a Polish state firm. Here, uh, uh, a, a number of uh, high-profile interventions in the center of Baghdad and, uh, again, architectural curricula. And finally, uh, from the Gulf, uh, a number of really important projects uh, in downtown Abu Dhabi by uh, Techno Expo Stroy and a uh, large number of projects from uh, Poland and Kuwait. So the one comment I want to make in response to Jessica's question is the comment about periodization. And uh, this is a map which we have drawn on the basis of a Polish archive in Warsaw, the archive of the Polish uh, Society of Architects, showing 1,600 <coughs> Polish projects abroad from the 50s to the 80s. And it also, so that's the map which shows the geographic location of these projects, but also uh, the change of this location from the 60s, where, for example, Ghana was very important, to, broadly speaking, oil-producing countries in the 70s and 80s. And that's the diagram which I drew on the basis of that, of that archive too, which is, I think is very interesting and it shows kind of two types of tendencies, which again suggest something about the periodization. So on the horizontal axis, you see the number of receiving countries in a given year, and on the vertical, the number of export projects in a given year. So you see that the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s was a, was a period of geographic expansion with a relatively small number of projects, while uh, the period from the 70s to the mid-80s was, was a period of a true explosion of the number of projects, but, with, but within a kind of stable geographic framework. And, you know, there is a number of reasons for that I, I, uh, would, I would like to propose, but I don't think I have time for that. So what I want just to say that that's, that's a diagram which sort of asks a number of questions, allows to ask a number of questions about periodization. And, you know, looking at a different archive of a different country, uh, that looks very, very different. That's, that's a very recent diagram which we drew on the basis of a complete archive of the main Romanian firm, which was called Long Project. So as you see, a number of, uh, of a very different uh, uh, 
temporal dimension, most projects from the 80s, but also persistence of clients. As you see, the Romanians continued to work after the end of the Cold War in the post-Soviet space. And my final comment, that that questions of periodization, but also the questions of differentiation between various countries, which you know, came to the fore in this quick comparison between the Poles and the Romanians, can be also shown when you look at, when you interview the architects <coughs> and you actually speak about their everyday conditions. So that's a, that's a short excerpt from a, I think, really unique document, which was a amateur movie shot by a Polish architect in Accra in the 60s, which you know, shows their living conditions, shows uh, uh, their the socialization with the Ghanaian, yeah. Ghanaian uh, co uh, collaborators and co-workers. And that's a very different type of labor conditions, architectural labor, <laughs> than, the one, than the ones which you could, uh, where, so for example, come from the interviews with Romanian or Bulgarian architects. Thank you. Finally, it's a hard act to follow, but Oscar can do that. <laughs> Oscar Sanchez-Simony works on the Soviet economic history and um, Soviet uh, economic relations with uh, the global, what you call the global south. Mm. Um, and that's what you've been talking about. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, economy uh, because I feel like embedded in, in, many, in much of our thinking are economic verities that we don't question. Uh, and they're now uh, very liberal, uh, that go all the way to how we imagine human nature, how we imagine uh, human development, etc. Uh, I want to talk about economy and global power. Let me propose a thought experiment. What if the tables were turned? What would historians of the Cold War think of an American Cold War policy that relied for its continuous sustenance on a trickle of rubles, the most widely accepted currency in the world. What might they write were they to see infighting and posturing among NATO allies just to get their hands on a few more rubles so they could balance their payments that they may receive more communist credit? <laughs> what would Americans have thought of their market-based social model had they, along with Global South countries, relied to an important extent on communist technology for productivity gains. In historian uh, Bruce Cummings' formulation of hegemonic arrangements, <clears throat> the experience of financial hegemony was a mundane, benign, and mostly unremarked daily life of subtle <clears throat> constraint. In fact, as should have been predictable, the officials that informed and implemented Soviet foreign policy were well aware of steep Soviet economic shortcomings, as well as Western strength and attraction. In other words, they felt capitalism's gravity in their bones. Something Americans didn't quite feel. They naturalized it. What are the tax of writing global history of Cold War in my view? It's precisely to put this unremarked daily life of set of constraint front and center. Capitalism not only in its archetype form as a model of development existing only in the realm of ideas, but as a real structuring form of social political international mediation that no one except, you know, countries like Bhutan could opt out of, uh, is everywhere in evidence. A few places, few, and few places more so than in the Soviet archive, especially given the global ambitions of the, Soviet, the Soviets entertained from the, from the mid-1950s 
that developments within international capitalism itself opened up. Uh, even the very possibilities, uh, as we've seen, for example, uh, in terms of uh, the capitalization of, pro of projects uh, from Lucas's presentation, the very possibility of that is opened up by how we structure the world economy and how that changes. Economics in the Cold War field and everywhere outside of small groups of Marxists, Polanyans, and whatever Timothy Mitchell is, is seen by and large to be an area of human endeavor distinct from politics. And whether we're aware of it or not, we're making often uh, assumptions about economy that underpin much of our historical analysis. But if we were to carry out a scholarly project to understand what finances, the relationship of money to state authority, the constraining and enabling effects of world economic constructions and institutions and international politics, and any number of questions that will no doubt arise out of that, we would, I think, have to stop assuming the economy and begin designing a historically informed theoretical framework for understanding it. In this endeavor, I find Cold War uh, bipolar framework to be uh, somewhat limiting, uh, and it is limiting on two counts. First, because it seems static from a certain view, uh, although I'm, uh, I completely subscribe to the idea that there are all these different views and that we, we must at some point accept the variety uh, and, 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 and keep on working. Uh, but from, one, from, from certain views, uh, uh, it, it is somewhat static. It assumes a somewhat of an unchanging ideological confrontation in a period of 40-some years that is, in fact, very dynamic. Uh, global changes in capital structures like financialization are minimized. This is unfortunate because transformations in global financial structures are important drivers of change in Soviet foreign policy itself and within the Soviet Union. And secondly, because a stress on confrontation blinds us to the kinds of cooperative arrangements and parallel social processes that are the basis of globalization. That's what we mean by globalization. It turns out that the Soviet Union is a great vehicle for laying bare what the liberal assumptions are concerning things like planning, uh, international trade, money, or international finance. And even uh, one of the core tenets of social governance today, the very idea of economic growth, uh, seen not as a kind of uh, a technical fact, but as a form of governance uh, that is new under the sun in the 1950s, both in the Soviet Union and in the capitalist world. Understanding the global Cold War will mean reassessing in the context of the hegemonic, uh, uh, reassessing it in the context of the hegemonic institutions that sustain and sustain today capitalism. I think the introduction of capitalism into narratives and, and, and forms of periodization uh, uh, should uh, be very helpful for understanding. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right. So now is the, the, the time for the fun to start, I suppose. I, there's, a, there's a whole lot of ways in which we can connect up with this. I, may I propose that we start perhaps with this idea of periodization, um, which uh, a number of you have start, uh, touched on directly. So uh, perhaps we, could, we should open up the discussion. Um, to what extent is the chronology of, uh, is there a chronology, a clear a coherent chronology of the globalization of the Cold War? Does it become increasingly global? Um, or are we basically just left with a, with a variety of different speeds and, and, and patterns? Um, you've, you've touched on that. Does, does any of you want to come back to this? Yes. I don't know. I mean, this um, to me, if, if we accept that there was something called the Cold War, mm -hmm. take that as a sort of 
basic assumption. Then uh, there's really three big questions that sort of reflect the, there was the Cambridge history of the Cold War that was published some five years ago. Three volumes, so there's three big questions. <laughs> why, in the first place, um, why did all the whole thing start in, in the first place? Secondly, why did it spread? Why did it become global in a sense? And the third one is, well, why did it then suddenly disappear? Um, I think there's sort of three simple answers to these three big questions. One is World War II. You know, you cannot, the, the, the fact that you had 60, 70 million people killed in this global conflict could not suddenly, you know, it changed things in a very, very dramatic way. And there were some countries, institutions, whatever, that were able to take advantage of this and reshape the world to some extent. There were people looking for some kind of normalcy after this period, extreme period of conflict that was truly global. So if you think about the Cold War, not just the European thing, but also more, more globally, yes. I mean, World War II, I think that's the simple answer. Then second question, why does it go global in a, in a true sense? And the simple answer to that is again a one-word answer, decolonization. Um, which is, of course, <coughs> for Europe, but it's a global phenomenon that takes place in this. You have some of the same dynamics in terms of who has resources, who has ideas, who has the institutions to, um, to, to be used to sort of engage in some form of nation building, if you wish, on a, on a global scale. So those, uh, in some ways, those are two simple, straightforward answers. It's, mm -hmm. You can debate those endlessly, I, I know. The third one is more difficult, and I think this is where maybe where what Oscar was just saying is, is and what few of you were talking about, that, you know, why does it suddenly disappear? It's not just because suddenly the Poles, the Hungarians, the you know, stood up. It's not necessarily just that, unless we accept the, the sort of limited geographical perception about the Cold War as a really an East-West division of Europe, and that's all that really really counted. Yes, then we can find more easier answers. But if you think of it as a global thing, it becomes extremely complex. Uh, and I think the so you don't. It's very difficult to find a one-word answer to to, to the mm -hmm. third one. You probably have some connection on the one hand of the um, that you know, we sometimes say that, that some country or company is too big to fail. Well, in this case, the Cold War was too big to survive, in a sense that, yes, also if we hark back to some of the ideas and the ideologies and so on that perhaps lay at the root of the Cold War, well, maybe those don't resonate in the same way in certain parts of the world. Uh, also, maybe the message gets a little blurred when Americans support right-wing dictators here and there, and you know, so the idea of a free world becomes a little bit less of a sort of uh, unifying concept. Uh, and similar, you know, you can think of similar points about the Soviet Union, about Maoism as, as well, etc., etc. So, so I think that's. Uh, but to me, those still remain the three big questions um, that uh, mm -hmm. that are out there. I've seen a lot of hands. Does just one, just to one sentence. There is an argument that could be made, not least for the sake of provocation, that despite all that, you see, the mm -hmm. Cold War actually began in Germany, sure. and it actually ended in Germany. <laughs> and it's an the, impossible the, piece. It, Someone said has it, said. You, somebody said it. Yeah, <laughs> actually, impossible. Um, so that that and that that globalization had characteristics that carried on beyond the end of the Cold War, as, as you said. But in fact, the power 
where power saw beginnings and endings has to go back to Germany. David, uh, could everyone uh, speaking just give their name just for the for the record, please? Yeah. <laughs> David Belzer. Um, in a way, picking up on the point about decolonization, um, because I think that's, in a sense, what the sort of global Cold War raises. But it also, it, it seems to me, places the question of chronology um, in, uh, perhaps in a more radical way than uh, has been addressed so far, because, because decolonization didn't begin in 1945, and indeed the communist engagement with decolonization didn't begin in 1945. So one, one sort of way, and, and I, I agree with the speaker earlier who spoke about multiple histories, so I'm not saying this is the way, but one way of framing or reframing the question is to see the Cold War as, as an episode, as a modality, through which a history of colonization and decolonization was taking place. It, it, it's a phase in a history which began before the Cold War and has continued, and the search for stable politics and a stable international system um, has continued um, afterwards. So, uh, in a way, um, I suppose I think that the discussion so far, extremely interestingly, has presupposed that the Cold War itself somehow is going to give us the master questions. Perhaps mm -hmm. um, I mean, need not do so. Mm -hmm. uh, and you should of, of, of the global Cold War, sort of, uh, I think poses that quite sharply. Mm -hmm. okay. um, Diana? Uh, yeah, Dina Felber, next to Amsterdam. I have uh, two quotes, and then I have a question. One is uh, Sergei Lavrov, uh, Russian foreign minister, said in August 2015 that the financial, economic, and cultural domination of the West has now ended. Uh, two weeks later, the New York Times had an article said, uh, sorry, US is seen laggard as Russia asserts itself in warming Arctic. Um, I'm, I'm bringing these quotes to raise that question. You, met, you see, asked why the Cold War disappeared. Has it? I mean, <clears throat> these two very characteristic quotes, and they are, you know, kind of just flow through our news cycle, are very much replicating the, the binaries and kind of the, the framing. And as I'm, I'm wondering if we want to think about the Cold War as a more cohesive thing. Um, doesn't it raise questions about periodization? Has it really, is it really over? Uh, how, like, in what sense is it over? In what sense isn't it over? And I just think it's important to think about that. Absolutely, and it's particularly that point of endpoints or lack of them that we'll come back to <clears throat> at the end of the day. But it obviously features quite largely in the periodization issue as well. Um, Iris, I don't know. Yeah. Um, Iris, where are we? Um, actually, that fits in right in there, um, because I would argue, or I think we can argue, um, that at one level, the Cold War was just, just um, a competition between different powers, which have existed probably as long as there has been history. And it just so happens that during this period, it was based on a supposed, a real difference of ideology. Um, 
ideology, I mean, in former times, the, these competitions played out in differences over religion that somehow disappear at some point because it's not that important anymore. But the system that there are different powers that compete for um, more power and for more influence, I think, I think, maybe you disagree, is something that is sort of a, a permanent feature of history. So just the fact that there are people who continue to talk about a competition between the US and Russia, does that mean it's still the Cold War? Does that mean it's still you know, something that is sort of more, an older, archetypical um, competition that is going on? I mean, in, in economic terms, we, we talk much more about competition these days between China and the US, or China and Europe, or China and whatever. Um, I'm not sure this is so much ideological, I'm, I mean this is much more in economic terms, but it's um, the, the sense of pressure and of competition is there. So I think, I'm sure we're going to talk about this in today much more, is what actually are we talking about? I mean, are we talking about this political competition? Are we talking about ideology that you were hinting at? Um, are we talking about global influence? Because a lot of countries in Africa couldn't care less, they just want to the money from mm -hmm. one or the other. Um, so we are dealing about different things here. Mm -hmm. Can I just, just very briefly about the issue with China? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, we do hear a lot uh, about fear of, of China and the rise of China and so on. I would say that there is still a kind of ideological coloration to that debate. Particularly if you say compare media representations of India and China. Um, for example, in my following of the, 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 the Maoist insurgency in, in India, which obviously uh, frequently um, scores episodes of, of, of terrible violence, and actually the coverage is often very, very low in the Western media. And I sometimes wonder if that, and, and if something similar, you know, sort of dozens of deaths in, in sort of bombings and protests, if that had happened in China, that would be all over the front pages. Uh, and I wonder if you know, we do have a, a kind of ideological um, uh, um, interpretation going on here that, that, that um, this sense that um, you know, China is different politically, this autocracy is, is, is doomed in somehow, it's, it's different from the sort of Western liberal democratic capitalist model. Um, whereas where, where, uh, uh, when, when uh, episodes of, of horrific violence and political conflict happen, in India, you don't get the same coverage, sort of thinking maybe that India is on our side in some way. It's a it's a liberal democracy, um, so I think that the, the the fear about China's rise does partly come out of the sense that it is a different ideology. It's a different political system that, to some extent, it is still the um, Leninist Party model there, but but not for the case of Russia, presumably, because I mean I think that what you're hearing there is backwash from the end of the Cold War, because the, the sense of the ideology pervading, pervading not only the, the politics and the diplomacy, but also the internal structures and the amount of freedom <coughs> that the state gave its people makes it very different from the Putinesque um, pirouettes on the well, world stage at the moment. To me, it's very striking how the, how the binaries of the Cold War, this binary rhetoric that sets one side against the other, um, on those kind of in a big participant is on, on not not even I mean uh, if you look at British coverage or any other how these binaries of East West supposedly are now projected and replicated in our times uh, very naturalized in a very seamless kind of way. Yeah. 
Uh, and so we sort of assume that China or Russia are going to have bad human rights record. Uh, they, they're going to be oppressive and kind of indulging in their whatever old evil practices. And then uh, they are doomed in some way. Precisely. I mean, the, 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 an article is kind of prophesizing Putin's imminent demise appear kind of on a monthly or yearly basis, and he's still with us. Uh, or, you know, Russia's economic collapse because the model of the energy state is unsustainable. Again, these are like yearly uh, references, and, and these, again, these patterns of thinking, I find. Uh, the binaries, the way you construct any, the, the, the dooms, like, oh, it's only five minutes, in five minutes they're going to fall. Uh, that is kind of very much structures uh, definitely the political rhetoric uh, in this day and age, uh, the news reporting and, and so on. Mm -hmm. And I think to a certain extent even kind of popular thinking. Uh, the way, and this is how these frameworks still uh, influence how people think about Russia. The mm -hmm. um, okay. um, yeah, in the response to some of the comments and, and just this question, I, I wanted um, to say that in a way, one of the like big questions for, for this research, or for my research, was something like that. Um, to what extent this work of the architects and planners and so on uh, uh, from socialist countries represents some kind of a parallel development? you know, and different type of modernity, or whether it was really an attempt at integration, much along Oscar's book, and also to, in parallel in, in relation to Oscar's book on red globalization. Um, and I think that I certainly don't believe uh, into something like, you know, socialist modernity as being shown there in, in Accra, uh, or, you know, in Algeria, in Libya, and so on. But nevertheless, there were clearly specificities which are distinct. These specificities included the organization of architectural labor, which are crucial and had all sorts of consequences. The sort of, as somebody said, longer sensitivities, the fact that, you know, you know, specifically in architecture, the experience of nation building, the relationship between architecture and nation building in Central and Eastern Europe since the late 19th century, it was essential, which was really something which was referred to in discourse and in practice. Uh, the questions of uh, uh, sort of division of labor, to what extent there was a division of labor within Common Con or sort of outside of Common Con among socialist countries, and one do, does see sort of patterns, you know, the reconstruction of Warsaw's experience which was reproduced, the Bulgarian experience in the, in the, on the Black Sea and the tourist development, which was something which was important and developed around the Mediterranean, the Romanian experience with heavy prefabrication, and for example, you know, seismic norms which were reproduced, like the, 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 the seismic norms in Nigeria, the building law, is a Romanian Building though, so uh, so that all so these type of specificities, and at the same time, yes, there were also all sorts of collaborations, and uh, I could call like like precisely like like you know taking the technology of a production from the West and then building the building from the East. That type of collaboration happened a lot, uh, in particular in the later period, and I, I think that there is where the periodization can be. And here, from that uh, that type of phenomena, one can develop arguments about periodization, and also some kind of what I could call sort of confrontational collaborations, which also, like from the archives, uh, can appear that they were happening a lot. Like, for example, you know, uh, uh, a Belgian firm was uh, contracted to design a steel mill in 
to build a steel mill in uh, Libya, and then a Polish firm was was contracted in order to check on them. So that type of uh, that type of uh, uh, development happened actually a lot. Hierarchical thing. And uh, <laughs> and and also finally uh, about the persistence. Uh, uh, the, the Eastern Europeans uh, were taking since the late 18, uh, since the late 70s. They were uh, sort of taking over the building norms, the the kind of ways of operation of uh, Western Western companies in North Africa and the Middle East. And these companies, set up by by uh, state uh, uh, Eastern European firms, are still around and they are still active in the region. And the networks which were developed, sometimes through those, you know, socialist gift economies, which are since long uh, sort of surpassed, so, but some of these networks are still around and the networks between the clients and the contractor are still there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oscar, do you want to come up? I, uh, uh, um, I, I liked uh, particularly the comments uh, on uh, uh, David, is that right? about decolonization uh, and the Cold War as a modality. And I would add to that as well. I mean, can we think of, uh, again, I, I feel like, for example, this commentary about uh, Russia and, and, and this and that uh, stems from a particular idea of the Cold War as a competition between two countries uh, that I don't particularly subscribe, in, uh, 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 subscribe to. I think to think of the Cold War as a modality of American hegemony in the world uh, as a construction of American hegemony, uh, a particular construction of uh, communism, mm -hmm. uh, which is not to say that it's all wrong or that communism doesn't exist somehow, uh, uh, but, it, but it is to say that it's constructed in a particular way in, in order to carry out a certain kind of a foreign policy, in order to carry out especially a certain kind of domestic policy within Europe and the United States. Um, uh, and that that modality ended of American hegemony, and we and we and we uh, sort of moved into another one after '91. Uh, that is still very much with us to talk about the competition of Russia and the United States today, or even uh, China and the United States is uh, it's uh, somewhat ridiculous, I think, given the kind of world power that the Americans can exercise versus. Uh, Everybody, everybody else. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of that has to do with how things are structured, uh, and, and, how, and particularly uh, uh, the structures of finance and the, structure and, and the role of the dollar. But until we come to terms with what money means, for example, how it is related to authority, how entering certain debt forms in the, in, in the dollar is entering into a certain form of authority, uh, I don't think, I think until we develop a language to, to talk about that, we cannot talk about, uh, well, well, we'll just miss it. Mm -hmm. Sandrine? Yes, uh, I think I could be exactly what, uh, what you're saying. Uh, I think that we tend to see the Cold War from the Western world perspective, and we have to turn to the Eastern world perspective. So from the Eastern world point of view, what is it about? It's a uh, you know, country which try to develop economically. Socialism is about economic development. Socialism is first an economic development project. And to develop, these countries have to develop in a world where there is a, an economic hegemony which they don't master. They have to enter this world and they, don't, they, ha they have to, to enter this world. And in this competition, they have 
from the beginning, they, have, they are in the weak position. So, and uh, really, I mean, when you look at that from this point of view, and it's what you can do when you are looking at what I'm doing uh, at the archives of international organization, for example, because here it's very clear what they want. Then, I mean, it makes sense, for example, all this international socialism. What is it about? It is to export, not maybe not a model, not a socialist model or socialist modernity. So it was also my assumption from the beginning, but then, I mean, I mean, when you work on that, you're, you see that it's not exactly working like that. But it's, uh, to it's because they stand for a kind of development project which in a certain way was successful in the 50s and the 60s. Up to the 60s, it was fairly successful when you think about it. I mean, these are the countries in Eastern Europe which really industrialized very rapidly. And this model could be sold to the South because it was a, it was a successful model at that time. And we have to think about it. It was a successful model at that time, uh, which could, uh, 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 there was an industrialization with, uh, without much poverty. And it's something that we have to keep in mind. I mean, this country could industrialize without much poverty. And it was something which could be sold to the South. And the South was eager, in a certain way, to learn from this country. It was a kind of semi-periphery of Europe, which would sell their own model to the periphery of the world. So if you look at that from this point of view, then you know all this question about two big powers and so on and so forth, it's, it, it's becoming another story. It's, I mean, I'm not saying that there is not a competition between powers. I'm, I'm just saying that you can look at it completely differently, and then you get another story. So it's, uh, and, and also another chronology, by the way. Completely different chronology. And then I would say the Cold War ends in the 70s. Because it's the end of this economic competition, in a way. So it's, it's over. Elidor? Mm. Uh, yeah. Sorry, Elidor first. Um, it's interesting that the issue of prioritization, I think, has, has, has really been interesting and productive because it's raised issues about geography, uh, Germany, uh, to what point do we have to go back to Germany? Um, but I, Oscar invites us to sort of consider capital and, and financial institutions and mobilization of, of, of capital. Um, but I wonder if it's possible to do exactly the opposite and consider anti-capitalism. And if we consider the Cold War as an episode in the history of anti-capitalism. Uh, and the history of anti-capitalism is not ended, um, but it, there is, it's, it's tr still a strong current of anti-capitalism in the world, even though, even taken for granted that American hegemony is there and so on and so forth, there is anti-capitalism, is, it is a strong idea. It is an idea that many people are committed to. It's just that we had these state experiments built on it, and they rose and fall, and, and would it be possible to see it that way? And isn't the end point really the China story, that you could have capitalism without mm -hmm. all those democratic institutions? And that experiment has sort of sort of shown us the way of the future. Yes, and I, I, I would be, I think I would be sympathetic to an idea of uh, seeing the Cold War as a particular episode in the rise of uh, the power of the left that begins, and I think Arnie might be right, I don't know, I haven't, I just talked to him the other day, and, and he might be writing something like this, I, I wonder, I hope he does. Uh, the rise of leftist, of leftism from, from the 19th century, and, and, and it takes a particular form during the Cold War. Uh, and, then, and then it's fallen in the 1970s, and, uh, uh, and it's recast, and it's, 
its fall and you know and its survival in, in, in and now its sort of resurgence. I'm I'm sympathetic to that. I am not so sympathetic about the idea of the Soviet Union as anti-capitalist. It just doesn't make sense uh, economically within the Soviet Union. I think, in fact, the history of the Soviet Union is the is the history of the rise of capitalism within the Soviet Union. That is, if you have an idea of the Soviet Union as a rise and fall, as a particular state project that rises up uh, during Stalin and then inevitably falls down and down and down and down until it's over. Well, then you can make that kind of narrative. Uh, but it doesn't, that story doesn't make sense uh, socially or economically uh, because the Soviet Union is constantly transforming. One of the things that the Soviet Union is doing is, for example, spreading wage labor uh, uh, and changing, changing its approaches to reform so that they introduce, for example, uh, uh, greater incentivization strategies, profitability, uh, all these things are, uh, in effect, transformations, right? And, and what is producing those transformations? Well, uh, you know, uh, that's, and we don't know because, because the problem with the Soviet, uh, with Soviet historiography is that we have absolutely zero work uh, since the opening of the archives on, on, uh, on, on the economic life of the Soviet Union. Uh, and, and as soon as anybody looks, I mean, they find all kinds of interesting stuff, like, for example, I didn't know until recently when I read a paper that uh, there, wasn't, there were no wages in, in the rural economy and that they were introduced in the 50s and 60s. Well, what does that mean? That seems to me a big change to commoditize uh, the life of people uh, like that, right? Uh, so uh, uh, I, I would tend to see it differently. I, I see the Soviet Union as a project. I mean, there's a, there's a terrorist project that fails to bring capitalism to, uh, to, to the place, partly because World War I, et cetera. Uh, disrupts that attempt, uh, not that it had been very successful. And then there's a Soviet project that effectively brings capitalism uh, and that from the inside essentially uh, ends uh, 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 particular forms of governance uh, as, a as a consequence of that introduction of, of uh, forms of capitalism. It could be taken too far, and I wouldn't want to, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but seeing it from, see it from that perspective, uh, I, think, I think that's a narrative that makes more sense. Uh, when you see the, the rise of certain social forms like individualist labor, et cetera, et cetera, uh, the rise of engineering, the dreams that, that parents have for their children, which is not to be workers. <laughs> no, no one in the Soviet Union hopes that the child will grow up to be a worker by the 1960s, right? Uh, uh, all that needs to be explained. Right, Elidor can come back in a sec. Maybe there's one question at the back, and then Lucas. Yeah. Yeah, can you give your name, please? Yeah, George Murray. I'm doing a PhD in the United States, but socialism global. But I'm afraid it's another question for Oscar. I was kind of thinking about interested in the implications of uh, your critique of bipolarity for the, the, the nations of the Eastern Bloc. Because um, it seemed to me if we kind of let go of this, the kind of Jonas Gaddis bipolar model that I was taught as an undergrad, um, and this idea of the Eastern Bloc states as kind of kind states or penetrated states, Soviet Union or whatever kind of form of model you want to use, uh, it could have two implications seems to me um, for these countries that they, they either kind of we need to rethink their relationship with the Soviet Union and that they're kind of these kind of notions of subordination to the Soviet Union um, or there's this kind of second possibility that we um, imagine them as kind of so, so if the Soviet Union is, is was kind of 
seeing not in a bipolar way, but as trying to enter a, a, a kind of world economic system which is characterised by the US hegemony. Um, do we kind of, and then we kind of relegate so we from that, that kind of position, do the Eastern Bloc nations kind of fall with the Soviet Union? Uh, and do we, could we say, for example, um, as I think you might be able to say, actually, if you look at the case of some, some, somewhere like the GDR, um, we see the kind of similar debt crises stemming from 73 and the changes surrounding 73 and the opioid crisis, etc that we see in the third world in countries in Africa. Okay, come, come back in a sec. David, did you have your hand up? No, someone in the back. Sorry, Dina and then the person. Uh, super sympathetic with Oscar's uh, last remarks. Um, it also made me thinking about uh, Stephen Hawking wrote uh, that socialism is what capitalism is not. Like when the socialists, when they arrived, they didn't think about themselves. The one who said, what are we? We are not capitalism. This is what became a definition of socialism. And so by, by, by the by very act of defining yourself vis-a-vis -vis that other, you bring that other into your system, and then it kind of stays. Mm -hmm. uh, in the middle, yeah? yeah. Uh, Anatoly Pinsky, the European University of St. Petersburg. I'm also very sympathetic, Oscar, to what you said, but I, just want, I, I was wondering if you could may, maybe be a little bit more rigorous about what you mean by capitalism mm -hmm. in this case, because the design, I mean, there were a number of things that you, you listed a number of things, I mean, wage labor, mm -hmm. Sure, um, it's, it's, it's important, but then there are some other things that you listed, like the desire not to be a worker, which, which, which may not be um, necessarily, that desire may not necessarily be capitalist. So I'm just wondering if we can, I think that the, the, the debate, in a sense, so far as I'm, the, the disagreement between, between Oscar and Eleanor, I think it can be reconciled on one level by looking at cultural history as opposed to um, socioeconomic history. On the other hand, I think it's it's it, it, it's very it's very productive, and what you said was was, was very um, provocative. But how are we defining this? Lucas, hey, I, my comment goes in a similar direction, and it's also coming to you. I I can recognize uh, you know like by looking at architects, I can recognize a lot of what you're saying. You know, in in a way, the architects are very good subjects to study these processes because it's about intellectual labor, it's about, if you like, you know, the desire to, to, to uh, deliver services, it's, it's about, if you like, self-exploitation, uh, so it kind of the concept of creativity within capitalism and so on. But, you know, the question, uh, so, so I do recognize a lot of that, and certainly, you know, the pressure to be pro profit, for profit, that was, that, was, uh, that was coming to the fore a lot in those countries, uh, since the 70s at least. Uh, but I was wondering like, what kind of capitalism are you talking about? Whether there is really one, and so whether there are really various ways of thinking on capitalism. Uh, so, you know, so in other words, not maybe that the rise of Soviet Union is the rise of capitalism in the Soviet Union, but you know, what kind of capitalism was, uh, was practiced by these countries and one could put it in a sort of negative way like I think you know a lot of Western Marxists criticized sort of state capitalism mm -hmm. at that time and you know when you look at the contracts of these architects and you realize that they were paying 50 60 percent taxes you know for those from contacts abroad you can actually get a sense of exploitation there was certainly they sense exploited by the state 
uh, all but all probably my, one can one can uh, think about it in also you know in a in a different way. For example, a lot of like the the one of the case studies which I mentioned, the, the master plan of Baghdad was won simply because the Polish government was working a lot of the sort of exchange rates, and then like an exchange rate became like a key uh, uh, key uh, 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 moment in the negotiations in the between the governments. In other words, you know, the, the question between, I, you know, I, I, I know more, you know much more about it than I do, but the question between closed and open economies uh, were fundamental in those negotiations, even on the kind of on the level of, of, of designing a city, right? Oscar, do you want to come back to something? Yeah, should I be brief? I, uh, I, uh, I don't want to monopolize, but I mean, uh, absolutely. And I think that's the problem with the Cold War, that it never, it never came <laughs> to an understanding of, of uh, uh, people. <coughs> To understand communism, you have to begin with, with capitalism. You cannot, you cannot define communism as anti-capitalism without understanding what capitalism is in the first place. And I do not make a claim that I understand it. I don't know. I'm working on it. Uh, and and I, as I think everybody is, including, I mean, Marx died and he didn't figure it out. Uh, uh, and, and so, but, but, but I, think, I think that's precisely where, 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 where uh, I think Cold War historians should begin to look, which is not to say that they necessarily need to look at everything that is parallel or, uh, or, or, or that conforms between uh, these two systems. Uh, they're clearly organized differently, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, but you know, so if, if you have a definition of an archetypal capitalism, that's markets and private property. This is a poor definition of capitalism. It doesn't even, get, or even, even just markets. I mean, what are markets? We use this metaphor. To, that that seems to confine to, to be confined to kind of a, this this kind of idea of, 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 of agricultural markets with 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 very immediate competition when markets are in fact organized differently all over the place, just to think of that you know, uh, and go from there to try to maybe use some you know since since there's a lot of literature there maybe try to use some of the, some of those understandings and then bring them over to to, to uh, socialist economies uh, in Eastern Europe and, and the Soviet Union and try to understand those. Uh, and then we can begin to provide answers to these things. Uh, uh, um, uh, in terms of integration, for example, absolutely. What, what does it mean for the Soviet Union to be integrated? Uh, it's not the same as what it means for Japan to be integrated. What is Japan? What kind of capitalism is that? I mean, there's all these different forms of internet of, of economic organization that one needs to understand to begin with. Well, I think we have to be quite careful to sort out mm -hmm. what people thought at the time mm -hmm. during that second half of the 20th century and the definitions they were living with and trying to implement in certain cases, and how A, we see it now, and B, what's going on now. Because I think otherwise you get into a bit of a historical concertina, where you're projecting ideas from today back into the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. Do you see? No, I have more or less the same point, in fact, uh, in, a, in a broad <laughs> sense. <laughs> I mean, it's too difficult to bit periodization and yeah. all of these things. We, we, and this is the problem generally with history that you know we're here and we write about people back then, and uh, you know we don't really know how it was. Therefore, we use what we, you know, our our world to make sense of theirs. And and of course, it, as a as a good Norwegian friend uh, told me once, you can never get it right. And, you know, it's a pessimist, but you know that's 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 one thing. But I just wanted to uh, really comment on. You know, more specifically on the on the capitalism front, because of course there was no pure capitalism ever anywhere. Um, there was no absence of state role in the 
in the economy in the United States, certainly not. It was, in some ways, the, if if you if we we take the idea that in the Soviet Union there's capitalism waiting to burst out, and eventually it does, no, and it's, it's sort of created by the state. In the United States, you in some ways you have the reverse in a sense that the state is becoming increasingly more. Uh, involved in the economy, and you know, you build the welfare state, which we will talk about, uh, I guess, uh, more more later on today. So you have this idea that that was sometimes also we think about people back then. At some point in the 60s, we talked about convergence. I mean, that was the idea. You know, you have these polar opposites, supposedly. Somehow the two shall meet and, and create uh, the middle way, as, as the Swiss or the Swedish model was the one uh, that, that was often, at least in Sweden, um, put up as the, the, the perfect, um, perfect solution for everybody in, in the end. So, so you do, yes, I, I think the understand the point being that, that, that really when we talk about, we, we use these isms as though we all know what we're talking about. In fact, people back then, probably, yes, as Anne put it, they could think capitalism was not what we think about capitalism today, perhaps necessarily, and you know, different processes. I think what, if anything, um, what the cold was, the more we start to know about different countries, different regions, and so on, the more we discover actually how much movement there was, as you, as you, as you put it. I mean, that, that nothing was static, you know, the, the idea that you had you know, red and, and blue on the map, uh, fine, but it didn't really reflect the sort of much more complex, constantly changing reality. In fact, and, you know, Finnish companies built back that as well. I know, I know. And, and <laughs> so, Finland certainly, so, so how is that? That's what I mean with collaboration. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we have these, um, anyway. Um, we don't so have a, a lot of time. There's a few questions. I want to put one other question on in, in, in the middle here, in the mix here, which we haven't really <laughs> touched on. So when we're grappling with geographies and maps, was it possible for any areas to opt out? Or was it a, a global Cold War in the sense that it was a, 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 an unavoidable feature of life? I'll throw that into the mix, but there's a few questions. Uh, Julia first, and then I've got a list. Oh, I just wanted to add a footnote to what Eldor and Oscar were saying. That I think this discussion is focusing us back on questions of, of archives and sources, which Anne began as well. Obviously, we've been um, sort of luxuriating in this explosion of sources since 1991, though less so with regard to China, but it's better than, better than it was, um, although it's now, 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 now getting worse again. Um, but obviously, there's been um, uh, uh, this, this sort of great profusion of archival sources, but your editor, your, uh, or, um, sorry, gentleman over there, was talking about um, recognition reconciling this argument through cultural history and, and, and social history. Um, so, you know, what, what, what value do we put on different sorts of sources, particularly as we have so much more access to the archive than we used to, you know, or do we still put the same value on sources which illuminate, say, cultural history, which we had to be so reliant on previ previously? And it's a question which is particularly salient for me because there is really no archive for my work and the archive that I have is extremely shifting. It might be open one year but not for the next two decades. Um, I mean, obviously, the really interesting archives um, will would, would not be available to 
would not be available to me unless there were a, obviously a, a regime change in, in, in China and otherwise they are scattered in um, uh, film you know, archives literally all over the world. I can often get more information about what's going on in terms of Chinese communist politics in say the archives of, of Peruvian communist parties or um, uh, sort of French Maoist political groups than I can with, than I can within China. So at some point it would be very very interesting to have a discussion about the value which we attach mm -hmm. to different sorts of sources. I'm sure we'll return to that. So could I ask you to be brief? Sandrine? Iris, Johanna, uh, and Anatoly, and so we'll, we'll collect that. Sandra. Okay, I, I want to show what well. uh, you see and Anne uh, were saying about the language of the actors and the convergence and all these things. And uh, in fact, I mean, we have to, if, if, if we look at how the people were talking about themselves, I mean, the Soviet, uh, or not the Soviet, the Eastern European, or the communists, let's say the communists and, and the others. And of course, they were using the same language. They were using the language of productivity, they were using the language of growth, they were using the language of planning. It's absolutely the same language. They could understand themselves absolutely well. In fact, it's the same matrix, they're coming from the same matrix of enlightenment. I mean, we have to, we have to be careful, we have to, it's, it's important to go back to that. It's coming from the same matrix of progress, of enlightenment, of uh, making uh, of embeddlement for everybody of, of more wealth and, 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 and that's the same language from the beginning. So, and I'm a little bit careful about applying, you know, the, the term of capitalism to Soviet Union. Why not? But, I mean, we have to be very careful. What Marx says about capitalism, it's not just about market, it's also about the accumulation of capital. And then, I mean, it, it's the most important point huh, for capitalism. It's not market, it's the accumulation of capital. And then if you look very closely at what's going on in the Eastern European countries, I'm not quite sure that you can really find it in that way. So I'm not saying, I'm not saying that uh, you cannot apply this view of, but I think that maybe it's not, a, the question is not capitalism. The question is really modernity. I mean, these countries, came from the same matrix of believing in modernity, in progress, of growth, productivity, and all these things. With doesn't mean capitalism. So I would be careful by using this term. I Thank just, you. Just what? Iris, briefly, oh. in brief. I think we have to be careful what exactly we are discussing, what are we talking about? Because it seems to me we're talking about very different things. I mean, when you say that, <coughs> I mean, I, I would agree with you absolutely that um, um, the big issue since the 19th century with the onset of industrialization was, was development. You can call it modernization, you can call it whatever, trying to... to you know, it, it's a set of problems. How do you um, avoid poverty or how do you fight against poverty well, with different interest groups in different areas and, and, and getting more capitalist or getting more socialist are two different takes on that. But it's not like you're capitalist or communist, but it's, it's more like a gradient. I think we all agree on that. I mean, there's some, some of the most, the, the, the irony is that um, some of the policies that were adopted in so supposedly capitalist countries to fight communism were very socialist because they involved a lot of um, state input in, say, nuclear energy or whatever. Um, however, I think these are questions that predate what we call the Cold War, or maybe we don't, but then if we call everything the Cold War, it loses its meaning. When that starts in the 19th century, and it hasn't ended now, um, 
the question is why do these questions about who has how much capital, who has how much power, how is the wealth of a country distributed between labor and, and other parts of the population, um, do we, what type of growth do we opt for? Do we opt for growth as such? I mean, all these are big questions. Why do, we get, why do these questions get assigned to different camps? I think this is not right. predictable. Oh, Johanna? To be that way. Yeah, I think really building on this uh, discussion of the distinction between the socialists and the capitalists, I mean, I think it, in, in a historical argument, we can, it can get a bit semantic, really, about making this dis distinction. And um, it's also possible to, to take a more strictly empirical approach and say, well, that which is socialist, sort of a Kaganovich approach, um, <laughs> that which is socialist is that which develops in relation to socialist politics over time, and that we can sort of say, well, this is exclusive or not, uh, or not exceptional, exceptional or not exceptional in a context. But um, to some degree, we can take, yeah, exactly as Anne was suggesting, take their vocabulary and talk about this sort of a path that is distinct, that is developing over time in relation to the development of socialist politics and then communist politics. Um, over time, it has a longer history in the Second International, the First International. So, talking about this uh, distinct trajectory, very close to the sources, um, you can um, sort of avoid some of the uh, the questions about uh, what what it was essentially. Dean Bullis from the University of Vienna. I just wanted to um, uh, build a little bit on what Elidor was saying about communism being part of this history of anti-capitalism. I think we also need to remember that these um, socialist regimes, state socialist regimes, also actually found their basic legitimacy in the anti-fascist mm -hmm. fight, and that the Cold War was in many ways a continuation of the Second World War. And I want to tie this with uh, Jessica's question on was there any part of the world that was left out during the Cold War? And I'm originally from Australia. And when I read the program, I was thinking, OK, how did we live the Cold War in Australia? My family is actually from Croatia. And there was a problem with Croatian terrorism in Australia in the 1970s. So um, sympathizers of the um, the, uh, the anti-communists in Croatia, some fascist elements, some peasant party elements uh, who emigrated to Australia and then decided to attack Yugoslav missions, uh, representatives of the Yugoslav state. They even managed to kill some diplomatic officials. And this was tolerated, especially by the conservative government um, in Australia, especially under Robert Menzies. Why? Because these terrorists were seen as anti-communists, and Australia, at that time still being based upon ideas of British uh, racial supremacy, had this fear of an Asian invasion, which was being exacerbated by the communist um, invasion as well. So, um, all so of it wasn't possible to have that. Right, Peter and then David, and then we'll return very briefly back to the front. Yeah, thank you. I'm Peter Roman from Amsterdam. Um, I, I'd like to come to your question was it possible to opt out for a specific yep. area? And of course, it is. The answer is dependent very much on the geopolitical position of uh, the states we're discussing. And turning our face to the decolonizing nations, I think that's a very important uh, uh, issue because these um, movements turning to states, independent movements turning to states, 
uh, were really uh, very much about agenda setting. And they set their agenda uh, within a deep perspective of historical development, actually. So they were not about the end of the Second World War, which generated the opportunity to create those states, but they had met with a different uh, concept of political legitimacy offered by the Soviet Union and by uh, communism as a independent movement, as a movement to uh, to create a whole new state on a whole new basis. So what they did, I think, was set their own agenda during the struggle for independence and uh, opting for their own, the specific elements of that agenda. And they were uh, political independence and uh, they uh, propagated uh, democracy like Ho Chi Minh or Sukarno did uh, by connecting to the American Declaration of Independence, but at the same time were set to accept or to take the responsibility for their own population as an emerging um, political community. Uh, they wanted to demonstrate that they were better able than the colonizer had been to take care of the urgent needs of their uh, populations. And that brings in the element of economic development and therefore uh, the socialist model had some attraction for them. But I think it was a mix. And I think this is also the mix that may explain a little bit um, of the success of the movement of um, uh, non-aligned nations in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. David, final word from the audience, and then we'll come back to the question. Um, yeah. I was going to say, but actually, it's, it's, I mean, it's changed in the last <laughs> few minutes, that in the discussion about capitalism and state socialism, the global dimension um, had got lost a little bit, but then it just came back in. However, the points that were made about, um, in a way, long processes of uh, economic modernization, to use a word that we're no longer allowed to use, um, um, offers um, perhaps a different standpoint from um, uh, uh, to look at this history, which is that of the global peasantry. <laughs> because in a way, what was being spoken about was the efforts of different economic systems to bring the market to the peasants and to get peasants into towns. Um, and so, uh, in a sense, from a global um, perspective, uh, the Cold War and the export of the Cold War to developing states looks like part of um, a long history of different systems acting upon global peasants. Mm, thank you. That's, that's, that's a good point at which to finish. Uh, returning back to the front, we're, we're starting to cut into our tea break time. Would you, would, would you like to... Sum up where we are, where you think we are. Lucas is nodding, so that's a good sign. Just very quickly, I think that the questions of and the, the questions of periodization, and that's in a way a conclusion from from listening to this great discussion, it has to be also the periodization of capitalism. And I think that this question of so for me, for my story, the oil crisis is a crucial date for because it changed the way socialists states operated. Mm -hmm. The questions of post-Fordism mm -hmm. is very important because it changed the profiling of Western companies uh, in North Africa and the, and the Middle East and many state socialist companies adapted to that reprofiling. Mm -hmm. The question of non-synchronity is very important. Uh, uh, 
and I will finish with that. There is a, I have found a really great document where the Iraqi government was discussing whether they want to adapt a railway system from East Germany or from West Germany. And they went for the East German because it was compatible with what they had, even if they knew it was out of date at that time. It was in the 80s. And very, very quickly, um, Noel Annan's book, Changing Enemies, a great starting point for this shift from um, finding a new enemy. when. You, you've had the psychological trauma of the Second World War. Very easy to, to shift from anti-Nazi to, to taking on the communist Soviet regimes. And I think that's a completely brilliant book by somebody who fought in the war and then was a good spy in, in Germany um, before he went on to a very distinguished academic career. <laughs> Secondly, I think the word modernization that somebody brought up, I think we should think about that word as clear carefully as we think about um, capitalist approaches and socialist approaches. I think what Arno Westad's getting at when he talks about modernization is very, very important. Um, third, decolonization and the Cold War. Indeed, but it's a two-way process. I think if you're, you're a, a, co a colonial historian, yes, of course, the Cold War uh, impacts on how end of empire works, but if you're a Cold War historian, the colonies come into your story in a different kind of way. And this is what I'm talking about, the overlapping histories. And the very last word, I don't want to deconstruct your um, conference title, but Go we ahead. must be careful with war. Because why do we call <laughs> the, the war on terrorism and not the new Cold War on terrorism or Daesh? Um, you know, language is, is very, very important. And if we think of Cold War, I mean, there was the long peace effort, but balance of power, um, and I think that that deals quite nicely with some of these issues about post-Soviet Russia, uh, whether you're dealing with the same phenomenon or a phenomenon that European powers are very good at. We've had centuries of practice of being nearly at war and very competitive on a balance of power. I've just met those final points. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just say just a few things. First of all, we can have a conversation about the Communist Party of New Zealand later. I have a shadowy archival story to tell you that. I will share that over the week. Um, but um, uh, uh, thinking again back to my particular area of interest, China, I think that really confounds and mixes up this, this question of chronologies. You could look at 1976 for the end of Cold War, um, and obviously from the perspective of many of the, 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 the breakaway communist parties that emerged during the Sino-Soviet split, that's such a key moment, the arrest of the Gang of Four. Um, so, so many of those, those radical, for example, Western uh, European communist uh, Communist parties lose their raison d'etre with that, um, and then the turn towards the market in '78. So that's kind of economic end. I suppose that would that would um, tie in with the economic discussion. But then again, you look at 1989. Okay, it, the economy is mixed up with it, but it's it's a it's an ideological crash as well. You know, when the guns of the People's Liberation Army are actually turned on, are actually turned on the people. And I really sort of going back to the discussion we were having. Uh, earlier about um, media portrayals of China, I really would argue that, particularly from the point of view of you know doing sort of oral history work um, with um, sort of intellectual figures in, uh, in in China today, that the Cold War is still very much with us. You know, you know all the struggles post two thousand about getting China into the WTO. This sense that you know that the, 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 these global organisations still don't want to touch 
China because of the communist taint. Uh, I'd say that that's that's a discourse still very Thank much you. with us. Mm. And we we're going to end our finishing with you, Steve. You're I, writing a history of the global problem. I'm yeah. I'm, I'm a little uh, actually pessimistic right now after, <laughs> after this, but it's impossible. But um, I guess. Um, at the same time, optimistic, it seems to me that the Cold War indeed, however you define it, it, it links to all, in, there's a link to all of these other chronologies that we have mentioned here, whether it's capitalism, whether it's decolonization, whether it's uh, any, any number of other, other issues, which then oops, relates to the point about was it possible to opt out. And I think most countries wanted to opt out. I think that's my, my sense, that that's why we have the large non-aligned movement, that's why we do have a few countries that try to be neutral in, uh, in Europe and, and so on and so forth. But even for those countries, ultimately, they in one way or another had to, perhaps the Cold War was useful, economically or militarily in, in a sort of state building projects for the newly independent countries and so on, you could get, you know, suck up some resources from the United States or the Soviet Union or the former colonizing countries in Western Europe, etc., etc. But in one way or another, it was almost impossible to escape um, from, the, from that perspective. But at the same time, because the ideas that were channeled by countries like the United States, the Soviet Union, China later on, these were ideas that or debates that were not born in 1945, of course. They were not born in, in, the, in, in the 19th century either. They were, in fact, older than the Enlightenment, many of these, these debates. Although, no, we could say everybody was Rousseau's child in, uh, you know, and, 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 and it was all, uh, all, all back there. But, you know, mm -hmm. go back to anybody who's read Roman history, you can go back and think about the Gracchi and the fighting for social justice in the early Roman Republic. I mean, these are the sort of issues that, that certainly uh, had a lifespan um, of their own, which makes then trying to chronologize the Cold War extremely difficult. Thank you. End of story. Well, that's very helpful. <laughs> I think we've earned a tea break.